Last week, we closed out our series on discipleship. Talking about how being disciple makers is not a task that you and I have been given. Being disciple makers is in fact the way of life that we're to be living. That as we are going, it's a participial phrase, not a command. As we are going into all of the world, as we're going about our everyday activities, as we are going about our travels all over the world, that we are, that we will be making disciples. Not just the clergy that have been hired to lead congregations, but we are all a part of that ministry that's been called to be disciple makers. I also talk briefly about how we think and what we believe in our heads. They don't really define who we are as a person. They're certainly important. But we are defined more by what we desire, what we love. And so today, we begin this new series of sermons titled simply, The Love of God. Love that is far greater than tongue or pen can ever tell. I also close my message by talking a bit about how we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 but what is the image of God? What some people refer to as the Imago Dei. But that's simply the Latin. That's what is in the Latin version of the Bible when it says the image of God. What does it mean that you and I are created in the image of God? And, and that's been debated back and forth by theologians. And, you know, as I've said before and will say again, you get two scholars in a room and you'll have three opinions. Uh, by the way, this picture is a portion of the creation of... It's called the, the creation of Adam. And it's a portion of that great painting that Michelangelo did on the chapel of, the, of Sistine Chapel on the ceiling. And maybe this is the image on which we should focus. Uh, the panel is located almost at the center of the ceiling, sandwiched between a creation scene featuring the separation of the waters and a scene portraying the creation of Eve. And this particular panel features God occupying the right half of the painting, surrounded by His heavenly creatures or angels, and Adam on the left half, lying on his back on a grassy slope. And notice that in it, each of them are reaching out to the other, though not touching. I, I think there's no doubt that Michelangelo is making a distinction between the human and the divine. And yet, I think it also denotes the relationship that exists between God and humanity. As I said, Man is reaching out to God, which is the definition of religion. And God, in His creative act, is reaching out and revealing Himself to humanity. And possibly at this point, placing within His created beings His image. Just as in all temples in the ancient world had an image of their God within them, uh, you know, when Jesus was trying, when they were trying to tempt Jesus, and they said, Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What did Jesus do? He said, Well, give me one of the coins that you pay your taxes with. 
What's it got on it? It had on it an image of their divinity, their divine Caesar. And so I pointed out how since we are created in the image of God, it's essential that we understand a bit about the nature of God. We use big terms. Omniscient, which means all-knowing. Omnipotent, which means all-powerful. Omnipresent, which means everywhere. And those, those don't appear in the Bible, by the way. They seem a bit distant, in fact. You know, what's it mean that God is everywhere? What's it mean that God knows everything? What's it mean that God's all-powerful? I was sharing with Carolyn, somebody that we both know that is really struggling because they had prayed over an issue, not once, but with two different incidents. And... Uh, God didn't answer the prayer the way they wanted God to answer the prayer. So they're struggling. If God's all-powerful, why didn't He answer my prayer? If God's all-loving, why didn't He do something? We struggle. Yet what we do have is John's definition of God. And it's repeated two times in just a few verses with the phrase, God is love. But what's that mean? I mean, using a word associated with action to describe the nature of someone? What does that mean? What if, what if someone said to you, why, Joe Blow or Nancy Doe is love. What would that mean? <coughs> Wouldn't it mean that they are so characterized by love in all that they say and do that that's the best way to describe them as a person? The closest we come to a definition of what God is like is actually found in two passages that refer to Jesus as the image of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And those passages speak of how in Jesus... The eternal God became a human being. And so Paul could write in Philippians chapter 2 that having been found in the appearance as a man, Jesus, through the incarnation, through the taking on of flesh, made it so that God was accessible to our human sen senses. And that's why in John 14 when Jesus is telling the disciples, don't, don't be afraid let not your hearts be troubled you believe in God believe in all, also in me remember that chapter Philip says at one point well Lord show us the Father and that will be enough for us and Jesus tells Philip whoever has seen me has seen the Father I am in the Father and the Father is in me you see, in spite of sin, you and I still have the image of God. And God still loves us. But Genesis 3 reminds us that we messed things up. We messed up that relationship by believing the lies of the devil. That somehow we could eat that which was forbidden. That we could take a shortcut. And that we could find an easy way to be like God. 
That's what the temptation of evil is all about. And so now, the reality of who we are in relationship with God is found in Ephesians 2, 1-7. to where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the lies of the devil. The devil is the prince of the power of this world. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, that is, with the great love which God loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul just proclaims, by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? I mean, do you see that? Even though we were the ones guilty of breaking the close relationship that we could have had with God, because God is love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And according to Paul, He raised us up and He seated us in the heavenly places. Past tense. As a Christian, you have been raised up. You have been resurrected with Christ. Paul says in Romans, those of us that were buried with Christ have been buried with Him and raised with Him. You have been raised up and you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, sometimes that's hard for us to grasp because we have been given a faulty understanding of the cosmos. We think of heaven as up there. Well, where's that place heaven for the people in China who are down there, literally? You know? Heaven is another dimension that is very close to where we're at now. Paul says, in Him we move and live and have our being. We have been. Raised, we have been seated. That's what it means when we say God is love. We already have that honor. And that's also why John in 1 John 4.10 can say, In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation. Go ahead, say Propitiation. Yeah, that's a fun word to say. Especially if there's somebody standing real close to you that you, you might not like a lot. <laughs> What's it mean? Well, in everyday terms, it means that because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I have been rendered favorable. 
We've been placed back in the relationship so that God is able, since we are now holy by the blood of Jesus, we are able to come into the presence of God because prior to that, what is unholy can't be in the presence of what is holy. And propitiation renders us favorable so that we can be in the presence of God. So that Paul would say in another place, we have the opportunity to say Abba, which is not Father as much as it is Daddy. A term of endearment. And we can talk to Him. And though we were dead and previously alienated from God, John can say in 1 John 2.2 that Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He, His sacrifice, His death enables God and humanity to draw nearer and reconcile that broken relationship. And so our primary text for today is a passage that's very familiar, memorized by many. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now let's dig into this a little bit. The first thing that he emphasizes is the depth of God's love. That He gave His only Son, His one and only Son, His only begotten Son. Now it's easy and often the case that this verse is interpreted in terms of the manner by which God demonstrated His love. With the giving of Jesus to be crucified. I, I don't think so. Because God demonstrated His love by the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Allowing grace and truth to come through Jesus. Go back later today and read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. God tabernacled with us. That was His demonstration of love. We're told, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Now, we do use the word so in terms of manner. But, don't we also use the word as an expression of the depth, the fullness, when we say something like, I love you so much. It's a, it's a term talking about how deeply John is telling us what it meant for Jesus to be lifted up. It meant... That God loves us so much that He not only sent His Son into the world to dwell among us, but that He gave His one and only Son to die as a sacrifice, though He was perfect, to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And if the depth of love is measured by the value of the gift, then what John is saying is that God's love couldn't be any greater. For His love gift is His most precious possession. His only, eternally begotten Son. He couldn't love us anymore. 
By the way, though Jesus calls God His Father, He never refers to Himself as the Son of God. And that's why I think it's important for us uh, to think about the context. John chapter 3 begins with a story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a ruler, a part of the Sanhedrin, very knowledgeable in the Old Testament. In fact, probably a rabbi and probably would have had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. And you say, oh, that's not possible. Well, it is. And if you go to the Holy Land today, little kids will come up and they'll do like this and they'll say a verse from the Torah. And if you say any verse, they'll quote it for you. They've memorized it because they too want to be accepted as students under the rabbis when they get to the proper age. Nicodemus would have known that. And so when Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus and He tells him, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is confused. You know, I don't understand that. How, how can I get back into my mother's womb? I mean, that's not possible. And so Jesus tries to help him understand that by talking about how we don't really know a lot about the wind. There's a lot of things mysterious about it. But yet we believe it. We've experienced it. We've seen evidence of it coming home the other day. I saw that big tree down on 16 in the backyard. Totally blown over, uprooted. Nicodemus was still struggling. And so, God goes, I mean, Jesus goes on to give another illustration that, Mo, that Nicodemus would have been well aware of. The story about how in the wilderness, Moses had to lift up the serpent so that those who were bitten by the snakes, the serpents, could look up at that serpent that was raised, made out of brass, and they could be saved from the bites of the serpents. I think that's where Jesus ended. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, I disagree with those who place verse 16 in red letters. I don't think Jesus said that. Because like I said, Jesus never refers to Himself as the Son of God. I think this is where John picks the narrative back up and John explains to us the story. The story of the depth of God's love. And secondly, the story of the extent of God's love. That whoever believes in Him can be saved. Now John's initial readers, those who would first read this Gospel, would have been very familiar with the thought of God's special love for Israel. But in truth, His love is, and always was, indiscriminate. Embracing every person. Woman, child. There isn't a limited atonement in the sense that only those who have been predestined, been pre-chosen, uh, are atoned for. No, the atonement is universal, but it's universal for those who are willing to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Those who are willing to believe. And that word believe, as I've shared with you before, is from a family of words that doesn't mean intellectual knowledge, head knowledge. 
Even the demons, James says, believe that there is a God, one God. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, it's those who are possessed by demons who most correctly identify Jesus most often as, we know who you are, the Son of God. But does that knowledge save them? No. No, and we need to be telling that to people who are living out here who think that some re- for some reason because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and even because they've accepted Him as their Lord and Savior mentally, but they're showing nothing in their lives in terms of being a part of the family, being a part of the body of Christ, the church, worshiping on a regular basis. They're not showing that they love God. Their actions don't affirm what their mouths are saying. And so there is no promise scripturally that they have salvation. How does Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? Don't just be hearers, but be doers of the Word. Otherwise, you're like the foolish person who built their hand house on the sand. John goes on to talk about the extent of his love. And however astonishing this scope might be, John's primary wonder is probably the gracious embrace of God's love for its object is the world, which John would have seen and which you and I seen as fallen, as organized in rebellion against God. But for those of us who have and those who are willing to submit in obedience to the Son. That's what this type of believing means. Those who are willing to show that they believe by how they live. He gives life now. Abundant life now as well as in the present. And it's against the background of the wickedness of the world, even more than its vastness, that God's love shines out the most graciously. But there's one more very important fact that many people miss because we often stop at verse 16. We're so thrilled with the promise of eternal life that we fail to notice what John says is the purpose of God's love. that's why we shouldn't stop at verse 16. Because verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but but that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Focus is not on the eternal reward and the eternal punishment. The focus of God's love is upon reconciliation. You would have never gotten a Jewish person to say that somebody is in relationship with God, even if they were ethnically Jewish, you would never get one of them to say that they were in the proper relationship with God 
if they were not involved in at least living out what the Torah said. If they were not at least attending the temple, those three required festivals each year, and even more than that. They wouldn't have accepted it. And yet, for some reason, the church today is willing to say, oh yeah, they're Christians. Uh, I know, I remember when they were baptized years ago. I've gotten calls from people from hospitals who said, so-and-so is a member of your church, and they're in the hospital. And I've gone at least once that I can remember to Kay and said, who is this person? I've been here three, four years, whatever it was at that point, and never seen them. Who is it? John moves on to the world's response to God's love and the gift of Jesus' Son. And it's an echo of what he said way back in chapter 1, verse 12, when he notes that those who receive the Son, that is, those who believe in His name, receive the new, endless, supernatural life in the kingdom. Where the response is unbelief or rejection, the result is unutterably solemn. Verse 16 uses the word perish. A fate about which John will have more to say as he goes on there in the third chapter. The condemnation is not God's specific purpose though. His purpose is salvation. Paul would write to Timothy, God wants all people to be saved. So let's go back to where we began. God is omniscient, all-knowing. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God is all-loving. So if God is all-powerful and all-loving, and God wants all people to be saved, why then everybody's going to be saved, right? Universal salvation. That's what some people believe and some people teach. But is that what the Scriptures say? Is that what Jesus said? Is that what the parables of Jesus teach? No. Jesus said there's going to be some who even come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church every Sunday? Why didn't we preach in Your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we release those who were in prison? Didn't we do all these things? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. You weren't a part of the body. You can't say, I love God and I love Jesus, and in the same sentence say, but I do not love the church. Because the church is the bride of Christ. So, here's my challenge today. You and I need to respond in love to the love of God. Let me go back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. How do we love God? 
when he was asked, we talked about it already last week, Matthew 22. You love God with the totality of your being, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And secondly, like unto it. Loving God, the vertical dimension, but you can't love God without the horizontal dimension. And like unto it, you love your neighbors as you love yourself. We need to respond in love to the love of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for even how Your Word convicts us of our failures, our shortcomings. And so, Father, we pray that You will help us to respond in love to the love that You have showed us in Your Son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dwayne, I did it. Dwayne and Ann have to leave for a family affair. And I told him, I said, well, maybe I can get done by 10 after when you need to leave. And it's only 5 after. Let's stand and let's sing our hymn of commitment.